Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 27th of January 2020 and this is episode 145. On today's programme, I talk to Alan Gow and Robert Jardine about their book, written with their colleague Richard Hanna, that examines the lives and war service of the men commemorated on the Bowness War Memorial in Bowness, Scotland. I spoke to Alan and Richard over the interweb from their homes in Bowness. Alan and Robert, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourselves and how you became interested in the Great War? Um, hi, we're, we're all local Bowness men uh, with an interest in local history and family history. Uh, Robert and I had, I think we met online and we had uh, been researching a few of our own family members at the time, my great great uncles, for example, um, who were killed in World War One. I. I just found the whole researching the military side of things really, really interesting. So we'd been putting some posts on Facebook and it was then that Richard Hanna, the our fellow author who sadly can't be with us tonight, but um, he has... Uh, he's approached us after a year earlier. He was in, uh, made a trip to the Somme with his late father, William, to see the grave of his great-grandfather, Lawrence White. Um, that was in Varennes Military Cemetery. And in fact, it was a personal journey that would later become the heart of our book, to be honest. So Richard approached us both uh, early 2016. He had this crazy notion to trace the information on each and every one of the names on the Bones War Memorial, and there are 398 names. So it was a mammoth task. And specifically, I wanted to look at regiments, service numbers and, and grave location, so we, or memorial location for the men whose graves can't be found. Right from Walter Adams through to William Youngson, the, the names on the memorial. So we set up a Facebook page and it kind of grew arms and legs from there. Eh? We, we suddenly realised uh, the amount of information we're gathering from various sources. You know, we made our research on the internet uh, and also from local relatives in, in, in our home hometown here in Bones, the amount of information we got was absolutely tremendous. So we again had a second crazy notion to maybe try and put everything together in a book. We'd never written a book before or anything like that. This was all new to us, but we we looked on the internet and we noticed that the Heritage, then the Heritage Lottery Fund, now the Heritage Fund had a programme called the World War One Then and Now Project to offer funds to, to local community projects. And so we, we made a bid and we were successful when we, we got the full grant amount and then it suddenly dawned on us that this project had become a, a sort of reality. And we were lucky because we were assisted by Ian Scott of Falkirk Local History Society and Ian was absolutely fantastic and he had worked on a lot of these, these projects before throughout central Scotland and gave us a lot of great advice. And in fact, it helped us to publish the, the book, our main output from our project, the book, which was a mammoth task in itself, 568 pages. You know, so that was that was how the project came about. That was how we, we sort of got into it. Now, can we start with a bit of background? Where is Bowness? For my for my ignorance and my lack of geographical knowledge, and what was it like in 1914? Okay, I'll tell you that it's in central Scotland, and it stands on the south side of the Firth of Forth, and it's about 10 miles west of the Forth Bridges. And in 1914, it was a thriving industrial town, and the 1911 census recorded a population of 14,034 living in the borough and parish. A hundred years on, the population isn't much greater. The population, I think, was 15,000. 
happened in the 2011 census. So although the town has grown in size, it hasn't really grown in uh, population. Now in the late 18th century, Bowness was regarded as the second port in Scotland, second only to Leith. But these days were now gone. But the important role that the sea still played was illustrated by the presence of consulates for Denmark, Netherlands, Russia, Sweden and Norway in the town. Bowness was a mining community. Coal was king in Bowness and the docks allowed pit wood to be imported direct from Scandinavia. Pit prop yards stretched along the shoreline from Keneal in the west to Carradine in the east and other timbers were also imported and there were many wood yards and sawmills. Coal, pig iron and general goods were exported. Chief imports were timber, esparto grass, grain, iron ore, phosphate and bones. The bones were ground into bone meal at the nearby chemical manure works. There were several iron foundries and Bowness Iron Company's drain and manhole covers can be found in many of Britain's streets. Another big employer was the pottery industry and at that time there was Bridgeness Pottery and its near neighbour West Lothian Pottery in full production. For the travellers um, from the harbour, the Carden Line ran a weekly steamer service to London and the railway station in Seaview Place was on the branch line that gave access to the main Edinburgh-Glasgow line. Like every other town in this pre-supermarket era, there was a vast array of shops that catered for the needs of the locals and there was an abundance of public houses. An evening's entertainment could be had at the Hippodrome. This was opened in 1912 and it's thought to be the oldest purpose-built cinema in Scotland. It closed in the 1980s but um, starting in 2006, it underwent extensive restoration and refurbishment and reopened in 2009. And when we launched our book in July this year, we chose the Hippodrome as the venue for the book launch. An annual event that took place on the 17th of July 1914, and it's still going strong today, that's the Bowness Fair. Excluding the war years and the industrial depressions, has been held every year since and this year it featured in a BBC Scotland television documentary. Tell me about the Bowness War Memorial. <laughs> I think you've touched on how many people are commemorated on the War Memorial. When was it constructed? Well the erection of a memorial was first mooted in 1919 but there was many difficulties to overcome and progress was slow. There was a scarcity of money was another major factor in the post-armistice trade slump and the project came to a halt. However, because the general feeling in the town was that the war dead should be commemorated, a committee was formed and a new appeal was launched in October 1922. The committee visited several towns to view their memorials and finally decided on a cenotaph similar to the one in Blantyre that had been designed by Gall and Barr of Bath Street in Glasgow. The Bowness Memorial, which was designed by Galton Barr, was very similar but not identical to Blantyre's and it was built in 1924. And it's constructed of Aberdeen silver grey granite and is in the form of a pedestal and shaft which is 27 feet high. There are 398 names from the Great War commemorated on the cast bronze plaque. All of them are men. The inscription on the front of the memorial reads to our glorious dead 1914 to 1918, which implies that all the men listed died in the war. However, some men had died after the war but had seen active service and they were also included. The list of names was compiled from church memorials and names submitted by the public and the deadline for all submissions was the 29th of February 1924. The memorial was unveiled by the Lieutenant General Sir Walter Braithwaite at a ceremony held on the 12th of July 1924. This was followed by a wreath-laying ceremony 
and a parade of over 200 ex-servicemen headed by the combined British Legion and Bowness Borough Pipe Bands. The overall cost of the memorial was £1,300. Tell me about the War Memorial. Are there any sort of interesting facts and figures that arise from uh, your work on, on, the, on the men who fell? Yeah, uh, most of the regular soldiers who died early in the First World War were in the local regiment, the Royal Scots, and they fought and died at Mons in the, the race to the sea. The local territorials were the B Company of the Royal Scots 10th Cyclist Battalion. They were mobilised just after the start of war and ordered to the east coast on the 5th of August, the east coast of Scotland. They'd only actually returned from the west coast of Scotland at Barassi the previous Sunday after a fortnight's train. Local papers give a great account of the scenes that happened when they were leaving, uh, it was all very cheery and all very, you know, there was a lot of, they had a great send off from uh, the train station at Bowness. Unfortunately, sadly, many of them wouldn't actually see their hometown again as they left Bowness. Many of the men would go on to enlist from the East Coast. The East Coast, they were just on sort of lookout duties, uh, looking for the, the Imperial fleet coming over the horizon, but a lot of them kind of, was a mixture of being fed up and also I think if it were picked up from the local newspapers of you know not not so much cowardice but them saying they could be away to the to the, the front and wondered why they were still on these lookout duties so I think a lot of the men felt that they should go and enlist and a lot of them joined up with the Royal Scots 110 men we had uh, found that's about 28% of the men listed on the memorial joined the Royal Scots different battalions but um, a lot of the others would, would be sent to join other battalions throughout Scotland and England the other Robert mentioned that Bowness was a was a port for many times. That's one of the things that kind of sticks out in our researchers how they maintain their proud maritime tradition with 33 naval men making the ultimate sacrifice on, and recorded on the memorial. In fact, 10 were killed. 10 sailors were killed at the Battle of Jutland on the 31st of May 1916. Seven of them on the same ship, the HMS Black Prince, uh, and many of them were stokers, being coal miners, the most common occupation. Uh, I think there was 73 men on the memorial known to have been working in the local coal mines. Uh, Bonus had many coal mines at that time. Um, and these guys were uh, employed to work in the bowels of the World War One dreadnoughts and battleships to stoke up the furnaces and keep the steam engines running on the ships. Uh, we've got a great photo in the book of uh, some of the stokers from Bonus. You know, the, the working conditions must have been horrendous, never mind the thought of uh, torpedoes hitting the side of the the, the uh, ship and uh, the inrushing water, the day-to-day the, the -day working conditions must have been terrible. Just some un other interesting facts, the, the most common age of death was 21 years old, who had 34 men that age. In fact, the youngest man to die was William Forrest, and he was only 16 years and seven months. We've worked out uh, using a lot of information from websites like Scotland's People, which is a great uh, resource. Um, we, can, we can find their birth certificates and things. He was killed, William was killed fighting with the Royal Scots 7th Battalion at Gallipoli in 1915. Again, I mean, again, a lot of interesting things for me anyway were, were, were the different campaigns that the Bonus men fought in. I mean, we, we tend to think of the First World War being fought in the, in the trenches in France, but Gallipoli, Mesopotamia, Salonika, Egypt, Palestine, all different 
theatres of war that they fought and died in. Well, I mean, in terms of young men, 38 men had reached their 20th birthday, we, we found, but we also found the oldest soldier, well, actually was a sailor, a merchant navy sailor called William Goodall. He was 64 when he, when he was sadly uh, drowned at sea. Uh, in fact, there were four men over 50 uh, who we died that we know of. These are just some of the facts that we've uncovered. So why do you think there's a need to tell the stories of these men on the memorial? Well, the First World War centenary resulted in uh, communities like our own throughout the United Kingdom reflecting on the sacrifices made. Bonex has got a real strong community spirit. And it, we found it a wee bit surprising that um, no one had actually fully researched the stories of the, the men on the memorial. It, it's an interesting thing, but the Bonex uh, War Memorial does a remembrance service every year, but we felt that the stories of the men had, had been forgotten. And it's quite interesting because the actual plaque with the men's names face uh, the River Forth, face out towards the River Forth, north, northwards from Bones. The memorial sits on a, a very sort of exposed, hilly location, but unless you walked around the, the northern side of the memorial, you wouldn't actually see the names. And we wondered if this had anything to do with it. But anyway, we were determined to correct this and we wanted to, to research the stories of the men, their family background, where they lived, occupation, where they enlisted, who they fought with and, and theatre of war that they, they served and ultimately paid the, the, they laid down their lives. Um, and basically, we one of the main objectives we had thought was to find... A, I think I've said earlier, the last resting place of each man, or at least the memorial commemoration where uh, their name is uh, inscribed. Uh, and we we definitely fulfilled that objective in, uh, during the project. But we wanted to make sure that everybody locally knew who the men were. We wanted to involve people of all ages, all generations, not just to sort of, you know, give an A to Z of the men, but also to give a bit of context to, to, to their deaths and we kind of looked at the way we wanted to lay the book out and we had a bit of narrative around each of the, the, the theatres and so that it became apparent where these men laid down their life. And in fact, it was quite interesting for us because we then started to see patterns in the data that we had gathered, you know, about guys who had, who had enlisted together, who had service numbers very close to each other and then who had died in the same kind of regiment or division. Um, so that was interesting for ourselves. The main thing is we wanted to leave something that could be used by future generations. And we included a lot of family history and local history information in our book to, to try and, you know, people who are looking not just to, at the war in the future, but looking at family history and local history can, can get a lot out of the book. I suppose the main thing is, you know, 398 names, it's a reminder of the complete futility of war in general. And that's another thing we set out to try and do as well. So turning to individual stories, who do you think during your search had the most amazing story? Well, there was several, I don't know if you would class them as amazing or not, but we found some of them quite strange and maybe even amusing. <laughs> uh, one, one was Andrew Holberg. He was a private with the Royal Scots Fusiliers. And he arrived in France on the 15th of September 1914. And two months later, on the 14th of November, he was taken prisoner during the First Battle of Ypres. He spent the remainder of the war in three prisoner of war camps before he was repatriated. Now, why his name was put forward as a casualty, I should maybe add here that all the names that are on the memorial were for men who were killed in the war, as opposed to them that had um, served in the war. So his name was put forward as a casualty, 
But that found that a bit baffling, considering that on the 10th of January 1919, Andrew was one of 50 returned prisoners that were entertained to a substantial tea at the Masonic Temple. That evening, following a great ovation, Andrew took to the stage and gave a short address to the gathering. So Andrew was very much alive. However, somebody had put his name forward that he had lost his life, and his name appears on the memorial. After the war, Andrew returned to the Merchant Navy, and he lived until he was 54. Four. He died in Edinburgh in 1943. Another survivor was Albert Watson Hutton. He was born in Stirling, which is about 20 miles from Bowness. Um, but at the turn of the century, along with his family, um, he was living in Bowness. And then he emigrated to the United States in 1909, and he lived in Manhattan and worked as a draftsman. He signed up for the first national draft in June 1917, but he never saw any action in the war because he had never left America. Yet somehow he's on our memorial as having died in the war that he never participated in. And Albert died in 1957 at the age of 67. In terms of an amazing story, I just wanted to... One of my favourite stories, I think, is that of James McIntosh, who was born and lived in Cowden Hill Road in Grange Pans, an area to the northeast of Bowness, and it's just on the road from where I was brought up, actually. Um, and I used to play in the streets that probably he did. He was a regular soldier with the Black Watch 2nd Battalion when the war commenced, and he was actually serving in India. He was one of the first soldiers in Scotland to receive the Distinguished Conduct Medal. What he did was early in the war, along with four others, led uh, parties of the 58th Vaughan's Rifles and attacked a, a, and recaptured a, a German trench. Um, three of the others also received a DCM. And then, nonetheless, he served another 18 months in France, during which time he was gassed and wounded several times. Uh, he was then drafted to Mesopotamia, wounded in the face and hand, then moved on to Egypt, back to France. He survived all the war could throw at him and then uh, came back to Bonesse in February 1919 after the war had ended uh, for a week's sick leave only to contract the Spanish flu and then pneumonia, developed into pneumonia. And sadly, James died in the, the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh on the 24th of March 1919, only aged 27. With a massive military funeral at Bonesse Cemetery, 50 or more of the Black Watch were in attendance. Just, just a sort of amazing story for me that uh, you know he could survive the war and then succumbed to the flu. Uh, we, went, we, we found an interesting letter which we discovered and reproduced in the book and it basically he received congratulations for the town council and he was uh, wrote back to them actually and it, the congratulations for winning the DCM but he wrote back to them expressing his surprise and thanks uh, showing a, a lot of humility um, and for me you know a typical Grange Bands man uh, humble but at the same time, it was hard as nails. Did you come across any tragic stories from your research? You could argue that every death was a tragedy. Uh, but if we want to refer to numbers, then the Drummond and Stanners families share this unenviable claim. Um, <clears throat> as chance would have it, the two families only lived maybe 200 yards apart, but they were both united in grief. I'll tell you about the Drummonds. There were seven Drummond brothers on national service. Six were with the Mercantile Marine, and one, Fred, was in the Royal Scots, attached to the Royal Warwickshires. There are four Drummond brothers listed on the memorial. There's Frederick, John, William and Robert. Fred was the first one to be killed. He was killed at the Somme, dying from wounds at number 49 Casualty Clearing Station. 
on the 14th of December 1916. He was only 21. He had been a pattern maker in a local foundry and also a territorial, and he had volunteered for foreign service in the spring of 1916. Fred is buried in the Conte British Cemetery in France. John, he joined the Cardiff Steamer SS Great City in 1915. He was soon promoted to second engineer. The SS Great City was torpedoed and damaged by a German submarine, the UC-47, 30 miles west of Bishop's Rock from the Isles of Scilly. Four crew members were killed and unfortunately John was one of the four. His body was never recovered and he's commemorated on the Tower Hill Memorial in London. William was a merchant seaman and he'd sailed for many years in ships out of nearby Grangemouth and Bowness itself. He was first engineer on the SS Jesse and while sailing from Cali to Middlesbrough, about three miles north of Flamborough Head on the 1st of November 1917, the ship was attacked by gunfire from the German submarine UB-35. Four crew members, including John, were drowned when a lifeboat capsized. After his body was washed ashore on the English coast soon after, it was sent by rail to Bowness, and William is buried in Bowness Cemetery. Now, Robert was the fourth brother to be on the memorial. He was also a merchant seaman, but unlike his, his aforementioned brothers, he didn't perish in the war. When it was discovered that Robert's name was on the memorial alongside his brothers, the memorial committee were said to have asked the family permission to leave it on on account of the expense of removing it. Obviously, permission was granted because his name is still there. Robert not only survived the First War, but he also lived through the Second War, dying in Falk at Royal Infirmary in 1948. And at that, I'll hand you over to Alan, who will tell you about the Stanners. Yeah, the, the Stanners, for another example, a great tragedy during the Great War. So it basically had three brothers who were killed during the conflict. Uh, started with Gilbert Stanners, uh, who was in the Royal Scots 110th Battalion, killed in action at the Somme on the 17th of August 1916. Then we had the eldest brother, Neil Stanners, Royal Scots 13th Battalion, died of wounds at Passchendaele nearly a year later, 22nd August 1917. And then just towards the end of the war, we had a third brother, Thomas Stanners, uh, Black Watch. He was in the 1st Battalion, killed by a sniper as the 1st Battalion attempted to capture an area of high ground south of Pontrier near Bethercourt during the 1st Division's participation in the battles of the Hindenburg Line. So that was tragic enough, but it was all too much for their father, Thomas Stanners Sr., who was a blacksmith to trade. He had his own business in Bowness in the church wind and then latterly worked at Ballantyne's Bonus Iron Company. Unfortunately, on hearing that his third son had fallen, he took ill at his work and died soon after on the 29th of September 19, 1918. He was 71 years old. He was described as a man of quiet and retiring disposition, but his final years were shattered by the loss of his sons. And, you know, that's the hidden cost of the Great War, all these family members that, that were uh, really badly affected by the the tragedy and the deaths and, uh, to family, other family members. Thomas, Gilbert and Neil and their father are all commemorated on a, a, an impressive family headstone in Bowness Cemetery. A really tragic uh, end to the First World War for the Stanners family. And did your research discover anything surprising? While we were researching the 398 men on the memorial, we discovered that these men were connected to Bowness in different ways. Some were born in the town and continued to live in the town. There was others who had been born in Bowness but had moved elsewhere. 
There were some men who were born elsewhere and now lived in the town, and others lived elsewhere, but they worked in Bowness. And occasionally the only connection some men had were that they enlisted in Bowness. So during this research, we found another 110 men who were connected to Bowness in the same way as I've just mentioned. Now, we don't know why they were omitted, and we probably never will know. The Bowness War Memorial Committee had asked the public for input, and it could just be that these names were not put forward for inclusion. Perhaps others were omitted because families expressed a wish not to have their loved ones' names on display. We just don't know. We have been asked on several occasions if we're going to have these additional names added to the memorial, but because we don't know the real reasons for our omission, we're a bit reluctant to do so. Alan? I was just going to just uh, say that um, surprising um, the amount of photos and information we got from uh, relatives and people from not just in Bores, but all in the United Kingdom and the rest of the world were getting stuff sent to us from America and Australia. And it, it, for me, it's, it's really, I think it's worth saying, it's really frustrating that a lot of photos are sitting in boxes up attics or under beds or whatever. And there's a tremendous amount of history um, you can glean from photographs. Um, we, we were sent a couple of photos just towards the end of our project. It was literally going to the, the the final touches were being put to the pub- publishing of the book and it was being, it's been sent to the printers a couple of weeks later. And we received a couple of photos. The lady who sent them, Sue Hodge, just thought they were photos. That, uh, one was of the Bonus Fair characters, some children for 1906. Another one was some employees of a local firm. And when we started looking into them, we found out that there were men, at that time boys in the photo, who actually were some of the our casualties, uh, some of the people who had been killed in the war. And it was quite unbelievable that we should receive these photos just for a couple of weeks before the book went for publication. But great that we got them and we, we've published them in the book. In fact, there's a thousand, over a thousand photos in the book so uh, that was for most of my friends who don't like to read a lot, eh? so I put a lot of photos in there. That's all. I really just wanted to say that in terms of surprising, it's an amazing amount of information that's out there just lying in boxes. So if anybody's listening you know, to this podcast, can they please have a look up their attic and look for some of these old photos and get them scanned and get them up online so that you can share them with, with everyone throughout the, uh, the country. So this brings me to my last question, which is where can people uh, find, obviously, the book, which I must say is a huge piece of work. And it, it is it's significant. It could stop a magnum round, I'm sure. It is so thick. And secondly, where can people get in, in touch with you? OK, well, we have four outlets selling our book at present. Uh, there's a bookshop in Bowness, the Inksport and Silver Leaf, that... Uh, has sold a lot of copies for us. In nearby Linlidgo, there's Wilson's Newsagents, in nearby Grangemouth, the post office, and in Falkirk, Waterstones in Falkirk are also selling the book. If anybody was contacting Alan, Richard and myself directly, we would, we not only would, but we have sent out books by postage. They can contact us on our Facebook page or they can contact us by email which is bwmwithoutfear at gmail.com. That's bwmwithoutfear at gmail.com. Don't get it confused with BMW. <laughs> the Facebook page we have is a Bones War 
Boness War Memorial Without Fear. That will also be able to get in touch with us through that. We also have a website which is still under construction and the address for that is www.bwm.scot. And finally, we also have a Twitter account which is Without Fear Boness and that is at BWM Without Fear. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. It's a pleasure, Tom. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>